So, we are going to be in Genesis chapter 2. Open your Bibles up, and we will pray. Lord, I thank you that we can talk about your word today, and we can talk about this chapter. I thank you that it's true. Um, We're not wondering that part right now, Lord. We're not wondering whether it's good. We know your word is good. We're not wondering whether it's useful. We know it's useful. We do have questions, though, of what does it mean? Um, And we want to obey you. We want to understand you. Um, We're asking for help so that we can do that. We thank you that you've given us a helper. So would you do that, Lord? Would you help us right now to understand what you've given? In Christ's name, amen. Uh, So, Genesis chapter 2, Jason said yesterday, if you uh, picked it up, that he was arguing that Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 through 2, 3 was a prologue to the book. It was like a preface to the book of Genesis. Did you pick that up when he said that? And he was saying the actual start from the reader's point of view or from the, if you want to say it, almost chapter 1 of the book, would be chapter 2, verse 4. So what he's saying is the stuff before verse 4 is preparatory things for the book starting in 2, verse 4. Essential preparatory things. Before we get into reading then from 2, verse 4, I want you to flip back to chapter 1, though. I want you to look at verse 27. My, My Bible looks like this when I get to verse 27. So see all my columns are straight in my Bible right here in chapter 1? And then I get to verse 27, and it looks different on the page. Does your Bibles do the same thing? So um, this is, uh, it's really helpful, indication that it's a different type of literature we have here. This is a poem. So we have a poem here, and we are not, most of us, if somebody said, hey, do you love poetry? Most people are going to say, I don't really love poetry. You need to learn to love biblical poetry, though. So one of the things Jason talked about yesterday was that we have a people in the wilderness who are traveling to the promised land, and they're getting this from Moses. What are they getting? What are they being handed in their hands by Moses? The answer is nothing. Moses is not giving them Bibles. He's not giving them his five books. So this is recorded, but if you're a person, what's the part you're going to know by heart? Why does poetry matter? Is because it's patterns of words. It's the way we like to do it in English is rhymes. It's patterns that we can remember very easily. And then we can fill in other details after it. So, for instance, you can even do it. It's not even a poem, but Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. How many of you could start the Gettysburg Address? Say, okay, how many of you can finish it? Okay, but this is the same principle here, is the poetry part... Somebody, it it serves a function in the Bible of summarizing things, 
preparing the reader for other things and giving you the main point that you could say, like the, with the Gettysburg Address, yeah, I got the start of it four score and seven years ago and say, what's the point? The point is our nation was founded for people to be equal and slavery does not allow that. Something's got to change. Is that correct? I don't remember the Gettysburg Address. What do I remember? I remember this sort of poetic beginning to it, though. It's a catchphrase that fits. So here, this part, I just want you to notice how this works. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. Okay? In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It sounds like you just repeated the exact same thing three different times, doesn't it? And you'd say, why did you give us that? I knew all those facts. Well, think of it in terms of a people who aren't being handed a book or a scroll. They're remembering something. So let's start, the way Hebrew poetry works, it has a first line. They would call it a verset. You don't have to say that ever to anybody. But it's, it's because a li- in poetry language, a line of poetry is not one line on the page. It's a unit. But so in our Bible, though, the way we're talking here, you have a line. In my Bible, it's actually printed too. So God created man in his own image. Pause. We're going to repeat it. But we're not repeating it and say, hey, let's be creative and just change the language a little bit because that'll be creative. That's not what he's thinking of. How do I rephrase this in a way that just sounds neat? What the second line does is it brings it a step further. It resays it in a way that you'd say, you just helped me and you moved the ball further than it was before. Sometimes there's a third line. So you find it right here. So, so God created man in his own image. This is part of, now we're going to flip to, we start with God. We end with image. Whose image? Well, in his own image. Now we're going to start with the image again. We're flip-flopping it and say, well, that, it actually makes it memorable. So God created man in his own image. If I'm memorizing it, in the image of God, he created him. Okay, so look what he's doing. He ends with image in line one. <coughs> Whose image? His image. I'm talking to my kids. God created man in his image. Whose image is it, kids? God. It's his image. In the image of God, he created him. Who's the him? Who's the people? What makes up humanity? Is it just men? Are just men significant? Is that the point? Male and female, he created them. So this poetry, this part, they would have remembered that. Other part, you'd say, ah, they probably don't know it by heart so well. The poetry becomes a glue that holds things together. So flipping my page over for me, I get to Genesis chapter 2, and right away I say, huh, verse 4 has one of those. Your Bible look like that? I say verse 23 has one of those. Now notice... There's no more until, look at Brandon's section. He's going to be talking about in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. Do you see what it looks like on your page? Do you see how patterned it is? 
What are they going to be remembering when the curse is talked about? When sin is talked about? This whole massive poem here. So this is what people have in their mind. And so we're starting here with a poem in verse 4 of chapter 2. And again, this isn't the part you skip. This is the part you say, they were knowing this by heart and they could fill in the details. It becomes like that starter point of something. Get me started with it. So, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then... The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant for the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So we're starting in verse 4. That's something that Jason had said again yesterday, that he sees that as a beginning spot of... Um, really the story that's being told. I want you to look at it. It says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God 
made the earth and the heavens. So Jason had said that this phrase, these are the generations, is repeated all throughout Genesis, right? It's like a breaker point, like we're to a new section. And the mark of the new section is these are the generations of blah, blah, blah. What's interesting is they're always connected to people. These are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of Esau. These are the generations of uh, Isaac, Jacob, something like that. What do we find here? What's interesting? This is the very first time this appears in the Bible. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. So if the people get a story, like these are the generations of Adam, and you say, okay, we're going to get a story about Adam now. These are the generations of Jacob. We're going to get a story about Jacob. As a reader, you say, why do I need to know that? It's because Jacob's important. I need to know about Jacob. What's this telling me right up front about the heavens and the earth? Heavens or earth are really important. In fact, what's interesting is they show up first. It's just a, it's a strange thing in the book. The heavens and the earth show up first. So we're going to get there later, but going through the Bible, you go to these park somewhere in Isaiah, but get to the book of Revelation. How does the story end? What is the focus of the re- writer at the end of the book of Revelation? It's the heavens and the earth. What's happening in that place? What's the point? New heaven and earth. What's the point, though, of the heavens and the earth? What's the story being told? Is it a man-centered story? Comes from God. Comes from God. Goes to God. God. Everywhere is temple holy. Everywhere is temple holy, and the point is worship. So the point isn't me. I have, because of being related to Adam, my natural bent would be to have a very Tom-centered theology. This earth exists for me. And right away we get something that's saying, here's the story of the heavens and the earth, which ultimately starts the words become mingled with the idea of temple. Why? Because Jason said it last night, the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters of the sea. The point is everything. Everywhere will be worship. Uh, C.S. Lewis said it, even the day coming, even when eating an apple, you will taste the glory of God. Everything is worship. So these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Okay, now in the first part of the poetry, when they were created, and you go, well, somebody created them. Second part of the poem, who created them? God did. You all just said God. What's the text say right here? Lord God. Look back in Genesis chapter 1. We have a change that's happened in the text. What's the change? Jason said it last night. God, 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 God. I think you said 35 times, didn't you, Jason? That name by itself doesn't appear once in Genesis chapter 2 or 3. Now we have an addition to it. Now we're saying Lord God. So you look here. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Something's been added to God's name. 
has he, in a sense, changed? You say, are we talking about the same person? Say, yeah, we're talking about the same person. The word Lord here, it's in all capital letters in your Bible, so a capital L and a capital O, a capital R, a capital D, if you can see it. That's the way our English Bibles translate the Hebrew word that uh, we think is pronounced Yahweh. So why would we say at this point, writing to people in the wilderness, I'm not just talking about God, it's your God. What's happened here is he's invited them into the story of the covenant God who has come to you, he made the heavens and the earth. Right? It's almost like a story of somebody saying, man, there was a guy who was crazy doing this and he was asking for you. And you say, well, who was it? And you say, oh, well, it was Brian Pardon. And I go, oh, good. He's one of my guys. I like him. It's all good. That I have a connection there. So if my thought is God made everything and he's a separate person from me, has zero interest in me, and he's just angry, by using the name of the covenant God right here, all of a sudden a warmth has been created. As, Wait a minute, that's my God we're telling. We're telling the story of a God who made covenant with me. And that name keeps getting repeated over and over. But remember I said yesterday, a good writer shows you something, he doesn't tell you it. So he's not going to say, parentheses, by the way, this is the covenant God that's talked about in Exodus chapter 3, I am. He's going to say, figure it out. I just used a name. You should figure out the significance of this. And if the thought is, well, that's a lot of work. I don't want to do that. They are anticipating you loving this work and doing it. Why do you use that name? It's you with your kids, and your kids, you're joking around, you're joking around, and they even make a nickname for you, and then all of a sudden, this is an opposite example, they do something they shouldn't have done, they back talk to mom, and all of a sudden you say, ah, oh, we're not using my nickname anymore, I'm your father. You go, oh, you picked that name on purpose. There's a reason. So why pick the covenant name of God, but not just the covenant name of God, not just Yahweh alone, why attach God to it? Why Yahweh Elohim? Because in Genesis chapter 1, Elohim's been the name that's used so far. So I might have a thought, well, Yahweh is different from the God talked about in Genesis chapter 1. By putting the names together, we're saying, same God. The same God from Genesis chapter 1 is your God. The God who's come near to you, the creating God, is the covenant God who loves you. And he made a place. And you, right away you say, if he's the covenant God and he made a place, I wonder if I'm living out in the wilderness, if there's a possibility of getting back to that place. Is it still open? Does he still have a purpose for the heavens and earth? And the fact that the poem starts with, I'm telling you the poem of the heavens and the earth is saying, this is primary importance because ultimately worship is primary importance. Worship matters. God cares about his name. So he's going to talk about something. He says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. Then there's this phrase, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. 
So we get a story being told here, and you're going to bump into stuff because he's not putting things in parentheses saying, by the way, I want to explain to you whatever. You're supposed to read it carefully and say, hmm, what's he saying? But one thing that stands out to me is this. God's playing a part and man's playing a part. Why aren't things growing? God hadn't made it rain yet. Why isn't it growing? What's the second reason? Man's not working. Hey, oh, so what am I learning right now? God is actually handing things over to mankind and saying, you've got a job to do. That moment when you're watching somebody work, little kid, your dad's doing something, but he runs all the fun tools, runs the power tools, and he says, but buddy, you can run to the house and get a snack when it's time. And your dad, I want to run the drill. Can I hold that? Can I run the circular saw? That idea. And <laughs> Brian's saying no because everybody wants to run the bobcat. So the idea, though, is what do we know about this covenant God? The covenant God has said, I have a part I'm doing, which is a part, by the way, you can't do. You can't make the rain come. I'm doing that part. But you have a part and you have to do it or this thing is not going to happen. Mankind matters. So, so we go forward and it says, A mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then... The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. You think it is important for us to remember where we came from, our roots? Do you think you need to know that you came from the dust? Is there any value in that theology-wise? Because what's your other alternative? Where did you come from? I think I've been special for all time. What do the New Testament writers say? Because they're echoing the prophets. Mankind is like the grass. Grass grows up, a flower appears, and then what happens by nighttime? Gone. Is there any value in remembering that part? That's where I came from. That's my roots right there. Not meaning I live my life telling everybody I'm just dirt. That's not the point. It's remembering what's my source. Where did I come from? And I came from the dust. It all the more elevates the thought of what God does with us. But think about this. Christ coming down, becoming low. How low did he come down? To people who are made out of dirt is the idea. I wonder if in our arguments sometimes about creation and all that, we forget the really simple point of this. Well, however we're going to argue about days and all that, we forget this. We still came from dirt. And we would be really helped to remember that. And in preaching and teaching with our people, if my theology doesn't include a part of, by myself, I'm nothing. And I will build things. I'll have a house on earth probably, but there'll come a day when it'll be gone and nobody will remember my name on earth. And you say, no, God in heaven. I'm just saying, on earth though, None of us are thinking about people who even we go, well, I think about somebody like George Washington say, yeah, you don't know him. You don't know his personality. You don't always like. And he will crumble away just like everybody else someday. And the mass of people, though, nobody will ever know in this sense. We came from dirt. 
We get the Bible story, though, mankind saying in the Tower of Babel, let's make a tower and it's going to go up to heaven. Why? Because we don't think we're dirt. We think we're heavenly. We're going to get our home up to our proper realm. Nebuchadnezzar building the 90-foot statue. This is me, but what is he really? Later on in Daniel, you're going to see, no, you're actually just a beast. That's what you are. Your source is the same as you just came out of the ground. You're nothing. So he, not meaning as believers you are this, and humans don't have value, but we need to remember where we came from. We're made in the image of God, but we did come from dust. It says here, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living creature. This is almost directly quoted in John chapter 20 on the day of the resurrection. Jesus comes to his disciples, he breathes on them, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And you are supposed to think when you read that, you just did what God did with the first man. You're retelling the story. Hmm. What do I think about that? What just got kicked, kicked off right now in Jesus doing this? And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Notice, the garden is not Eden, it's in Eden. So you'd say Eden is bigger than the garden. So you'd say, okay, how big is the garden? How many acres are we talking about? Um, we have no idea, right? But it's smaller than Eden. The garden is small. Does God intend the garden to grow? Well, if we go back to Genesis chapter 1, it says in verse uh, 28, God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion. Okay, so you'd say on one hand, the garden is supposed to grow, but who's supposed to be fruitful and multiply? Mankind. What will they bring with them? Where they go the garden will go with them. Why? Because they're going to work the ground and keep the ground. The idea is this small garden in Eden will follow mankind as they are fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's the picture. The ending story in Revelation, when everything looks like a garden, that picture I showed you earlier of the lots of trees, the implication is, wow, somebody did it. Somebody was a good enough gardener that this small little garden grew to fill the entire planet. Who is that good a gardener? Jesus is. That's the story being told. But here, he's put in a garden and you'd say, hmm, the garden isn't that big yet. And there he put the man whom he'd formed, and out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Uh, this is, I have an arrow in my Bible going to Chapter 3, verse 6. I just want you to see this. The woman, so 3, verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, Eve sees it exactly the same way. The tree of knowledge, good and evil. Exactly what's said there, she's seen it that way. There's a bonus addition to it, and that the tree was desired to make one wise. There's a third part there that's added. Brandon's going to be walking us through that chapter, 
But you go, Eve sees the tree and she's recognizing, wow, that tree is good for food and it is beautiful. And that's exactly what it said. This is one of those things like when you're watching a movie and they, uh, you see a character and you don't know anything about the character, but they play a certain level of music with the character that you go, whoa, that's creepy music. The very first time, there's nothing creepy about beautiful and delight to the eyes, but this is foreshadowing of it's good and beautiful. When we read it and we read, Eve sees it's good and beautiful, and then they add a third thing, you go, oh no, I have a really bad thought about where this is going to go because you just added something to the story that I don't think you were supposed to add. I don't think you get wisdom from this tree. You're going beyond where you should. So this is foreshadowing something. So notice the next phrase. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Period. Weird, isn't it? What's weird is this is such a small comment about something you'd say, Moses, don't you have anything bigger to say at this point? The tree of life seems like it's of massive importance. It keeps getting repeated in the book of Revelation. This is huge. Our lives hinge on this. And you just said, hey, the tree of life was in the middle of the garden. And the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And don't you want to make a point about it and explain something about this? But he just goes on. We're supposed to think, huh, weird. I got to think hard about this because these are really significant. He's going to get back here. What's is, interesting is these two trees are paired up together almost as if, as a reader, you're going two really significant trees. One of them never returns in the story after Genesis chapter 3. One of them is gone from the story. The other one takes on monumental significance as you go further. So, notice now verse 10 through 14. Long chunk. Five verses. They're all about rivers. Weird, isn't it? How many of you have thought really hard about the rivers in the garden that's in Eden? This is a pretty rare thing because you go, he's going to describe the rivers. He's going to describe these lands that the rivers go around. He's going to talk about things that are around these rivers. And just from a standpoint of looking at this chapter, you'd say, it seems like this is important to you for some reason. I don't know why. But just reading it, I think you could go, hmm, Moses, this is a big deal. I've got to at least have a category in my brain that says the waters connected to Eden are a big deal. I don't know what to do with the four rivers, maybe. I don't know what to do with those places. But for some reason, the water here is a big deal. That would help me hugely because later on, the book of Ezekiel, the book of Revelation, Jesus' words about water springing from your belly, he's going to be, they're going to be ultimately, Psalm 1, pulling from here. And you go, well, it helps me just to know, huh, five verses about a river here in Eden, and you wanted me to know it, that's a big deal, somehow. So, river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. So from Eden, the, remember the garden's in Eden, from Eden, there's this river, and it's watering the garden. And you go, okay, what happens then? Well, we need to know this river goes beyond the garden. I just want you to think a little bit, why do I need to know that? 
It's going four different directions. Okay, so this idea, I think, you got four corners of the earth. It's going different directions. Why would we want rivers going out from Eden that are sourced and doing garden work but are going beyond the garden? Thinking about what we've talked about so far. What's the thought? You are, by the way, a wilderness people hearing this story. What's the thought? You can be fruitful on all the earth. And you go, well, what do I need to be fruitful? You, you need water. So we get a picture of here, wow, this thing could have grown. Why? Because water's going there. Water's going all over. What's it do when it gets there? Well, the places it touches, good stuff happens there. What kind of good stuff? Well, notice what it says. It goes to this place, the whole land of Havilah, where there's gold. Anybody want to live in Havilah? And the gold of that land is good. Isn't that interesting? We're outside the land, but we're using language from Genesis 1 right now. Isn't it, isn't it weird? It's like Moses has brought me mind-wise outside the garden, but I'm seeing the garden impacts outside stuff. That, I think, is what he's doing. And then he says, and bdellium and onyx stone are there. Anybody know what bdellium is? Interesting. Jason, do you know what bdellium is? No. <laughs> this is one of the best Old Testament scholars around. This is a super significant thought. Does it matter? Bdellium does matter. Do I need to know what it is? What's the answer? No. It's this. It's a big deal. It's really good and you want some. That's the idea. So, so this thought, fast forward to the end of the book of Revelation. We are talking about this city and what's the city? It's got all these stones in it and the stones have all these weird names. You go, I've never heard of one of those. What's the point? Wow. What was little small measure in the garden massively explode. We, we are filled with precious stones everywhere. So do you see the story being told here? Is if Adam say, you're telling me to work this garden and what do I got to work with? You say, there's a river going. The river here, it flows all over the place. Get to work. Make this thing go with you as you go. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So again, these stones, by the way, this idea is going to be repeated. You should know this. These sorts of stones, onyx, for instance, used in the temple. As a reader, you're supposed to go, weird. Onyx was also in Eden. I wonder if temple is like Eden. I wonder, are there any connections there? That's what they would have done. Think about it. Wilderness people being talked about building the tabernacle. One of the big conversations is we need your precious stones and we need onyx. What are they thinking? That's the story you just told us. Hmm, is there a connection here? So, the name of the second river, he's going to name it all. The name of the third, the name of the fourth. This is what you just have to know. Uh, Greg and I were having an interesting conversation earlier. We were talking about when you preach a Bible passage that has place names. Like Peter writing to the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia. How much time will I spend preaching about Cappadocia and current situation in Cappadocia and the population of Cappadocia and say, mm, I would recommend not much. However, what Greg was saying, which I 
think is totally right is the value of it is this, though. These are real places. Peter wasn't writing to an imaginary group of churches. He's writing to real churches. These, Peter, uh, Moses is saying this thing, if you're thinking Eden was a fairy tale story, real story, real places. So don't put it in the category of back in our four, it's like Paul Bunyan. Because we can have that in mind, can't we almost? This is a Paul Bunyan sort of story. And Moses is going, no, real story. Real places. That's what we're talking about. And if you're thinking, do we have what it takes to be fruitful and multiply? He spent five verses longer than anything except, until he's going to get to this man-wife story. Longer than anything saying, you got what you need to make this thing go with you. Why? Because it's about worship of me. That's the thought. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Interesting. Um, people talk about God and they will say all sorts about things. They'll say, a good God wouldn't this. And that is their God. They are telling you the God they worship. Their God would not do, certainly. They're framing God up the way they like to. So um, people's God has different things. But do you notice your God brings you to the precious place that he's created? And he says, I'm letting you guys have the wheels. Even think Peter, Jesus saying to Peter and later the church, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. See, so you're giving the keys to us. We might break it. And the answer is, yes, did break it one chapter later. It didn't take very long to break it. However, what does it tell you about your God that he actually did this? Hey, Matt, this, what I just created, here are the keys. You're, you're kidding me. It's dad giving the kid the Mustang. You're kidding me, dad. Here's the one rule. You can't go over 80 or whatever it is, and the kid goes, you just told me what I'm doing. That, so the, the idea here, though, is do we have a selfish God who's trying to keep us from good? And do we have one who doesn't want his people involved and he's getting them into a boring life? What's amazing is he's created this thing and he says to, I just said, Matt, I said, Matt, here you go, have at it. There's nothing boring about that story, is there? That's amazing. What do I do? And he'd, I think one of his answers would be, what do I do? And he'd say, listen to me and figure it out. Be fruitful, multiply. Well, I don't have what I need. And he'd go, yeah, you do. Look at the river. It's going all over the place. It spreads out from the garden. This thing will work. So, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. These are, by the way, words. These two words, work and keep, they're the same words that are used for the priests in the temple later on. So you start saying, hmm, interesting. Onyx stones, heavens and earth, that phrase was connected to the temple. Now work and keep. And the word keep is also used. We go to, um, Brandon will be touching on this, but the end of the Garden of Eden episode when the angels or the cherubim are guarding the way back into the garden, it's the same word. They're keeping mankind from the garden. See, so what is work and keep the garden? What implications are there? 
the implication is this, not just, hey, keep it, like make sure the cucumbers are propped up and things like this. It's keep evil stuff out of this place. Keep it. Don't let it turn into something it's not. So when we get to chapter 3 and all of a sudden there's a crafty serpent, you go, Adam, you've got a job to do. It's his job. He's been told, work the garden, keep the garden. That snake, I already know, just reading right there, go, Adam, your job. And then right away when I see Eve is having a conversation and Adam is nowhere using his words, I don't even have to hear the rest of the story. I go, oh, this is really, really, really going bad. It will end really bad. So, he's got a job. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. You can really, really have everything here. So, God's a miserly God. He wants to keep me from good things. So, sexual uh, conversations, people. God just wants to ruin people's life. The God we serve is the kind of God who says, I planted an awesome garden, every tree in the garden, you can have it. You just can't do this. And you go, why? What a, that's a cruel God. What's his reason? Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. What's his reason? For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Is that a bad God? I just want to let you know, the day you eat that one, you will die. What a cruel God. I can't believe he told them to stay away from the tree that would kill them. What a cruel dad. He told him not to pick up the cobra. The same idea. So the word goes out. Here's just a thought. The word of what keeps you alive, how precious is that in this chapter? We've talked about gold, this bedellium that we have no idea about, but we think, wow, that's good stuff. Onyx. How about the word that keeps you alive? What's the most precious thing in this chapter so far? Honestly, can the gold keep you alive? No. How about the bedellium? No. How about the word? Later on, psalmists particularly are going to key on this of your word is more precious than gold. Why? Gold disappears. It vanishes. It gets stolen. God's word keeps us alive. So we say, wow, you just got a gift. You were given a precious gift, the best thing in the garden right now you've been given. Adam, keep it. Don't blow it. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. It's not good. The, the way um, <clears throat> chapter 1 starts, Genesis 1, he saw that it was good. He saw that it was good. He saw that it was good. Now we get a, it's not good. What's not good? It's not good that the man has to do the work without help. Say, help says, okay, what's the emphasis here, though? Is the Emphasis on, it's not good that the man doesn't have a soulmate to satisfy his personal needs. Is that the point of this? It's not good that man can't fulfill all his desires. It's not good that man doesn't have a helper. What's the point? What's Adam's job? Tend the garden. Tend the garden and 
be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with what? The image of God. The garden will come with you. Adam, it's not good for you to do this without help. You need a helper. You go, well, what kind of helper? I'm going to make you one fit for you. So right away, you're supposed to say, wow. Even not going further, because we're all thinking wife, and then you're thinking of your own wives right now, and you're thinking of marriages and things. And, but just think of, if you hadn't known the rest of the story, you go, wow, that's awesome. I wonder what he's going to come up with that could help somebody with such a massive task as my image, make it fill the whole earth. What kind of helper is fit for that task? But notice, whose job is it? Whose job is it to fill the earth? Adam's job, correct? What's the, whatever he's creating, what's that one's job? Come alongside and help. The implication is, huh, somebody's leading this thing, correct? Isn't that the implication? Somebody's leading this thing. The second person is helping in it. Go, okay. Paul's going to key into this later when he's going to say man was created first, not woman. It's a big deal. And you go, well, that seems so obvious. Of course he was created first. Paul's got theological thoughts attached to this, but he's reading the text carefully. So I'll make a helper fit for him. Now we get a joke, a very long joke. And it's not a joke like this really did happen, but it's being played out in a very long form of he's bringing animals to Adam one at a time, and Adam gets to look at them and name them. I mean, just imagine this. So almost like Noah, the animals are coming in. This time, the animals are coming in. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. So the idea almost is he... If we were here, he created him on the other side of the building. Keeps bringing him around. He brings this one around. He said, hey, what are you going to name this one? And you're looking at it, but the naming idea is also a fittedness idea. And he's going, not that one, not that one, not that one, not that one. And you almost get the idea, how long did this thing go on? Like, how many times did he see different things say, not that, not that, not that? And God is laughing in the background going, I've got the perfect one, but I'm emphasizing how perfect it is by you seeing all these other awesome things that you still go, that's not like me. My helper, I want to be like me. When you talked about a church staff, and you said, you guys got to think at least in categories that are the same. You can't have two different things. A helper's got to think like you, act like you. doesn't have to be you, though. So, it says, now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Selfish God who doesn't let us do anything. And God's saying, I made this thing, it's super awesome. You get the joy and privilege of naming it. He doesn't let us do anything, so you got to name it. Um, by the way, I think this is echoed later on when Jesus, for instance, renames his disciples and loves doing it. I'll give you a brand new name. That thought of who gets the privilege of naming things, it's Adam gets to name things. The second Adam gets to name things and say, that's what this is. You are a rock. You know, it doesn't look like a rock. 
No, I named you. So he gets to name things. The man gave names. Now we're going to repeat the thing. Like, so we're drawing this out because as a reader, I'm getting hungry for, well, the story keeps going on. I'm hungry for a real helper. So the man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. It's almost like he's going back to Genesis 1 and we're replaying it again. He's naming everything and I'm going to, he could have just summarized it really quick. God made animals. He showed Adam and, and, he, and Adam said, nope, none of them, and he gave names. But he's going to tell it in a long story form here. And it says, Adam, for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. Notice verse 18, go up there. I will make him a helper fit for him. End of verse 20, there was not found a helper fit for him. Whatever just happened is going to happen next in this story is a helper. You say, okay, what's the point of the helper? The helper is perfectly fit for Adam. He's repeated it twice. It's the point. The point is you're going to get the perfect helper to do this job that you have to do. And if you don't do it, it's not going to get done. So it says, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. What was Adam made out of? Dust. What's this creature being made out of? Bone. Whose bone? Weird, isn't it? Paul's going to key into this later on. And he's going to say, woman came from man. And it will form theological significance to him about the way life is. When people say, you're just trying to keep, for instance, women down or you're whatever, they're forming thoughts from here. That's where they're getting it from. They're driving theology from this spot. So she's taken out of Adam, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And actually, it doesn't say made. It says he built a woman. And I like that idea better. It's like I didn't just make one. I built one. And I built her and I brought her to you. So you imagine again behind the building and all of a sudden this thing that's been built, I wonder if Adam knew like he'd been asleep and he wakes up and he's like, man, I, my ribs feel weird. That's because she was a pain in the side. <laughs> <laughs> so, she's brought to Adam and he looks at her now, just notice in your text, what do you have now in verse 23? You have a poem. You say, hmm, it's significant. You need to know this. Poetry, easy to memorize. It really is. Easy to memorize. And these are the chunks of Scripture that if you meditate on them, you say, somehow the Messiah is found summarized somewhere in this thing likely. It's likely this is really a big deal. The fact that they're breaking into poetry is a big deal. And just, it just makes sense. If you're going to have people memorize something, what do you want them to memorize? Memorize the kids. Here's my cell number. Memorize this. There's certain things they never have to memorize. 
Memorize the important things. So somehow you're going to say, huh, this is significant, and I bet my Lord is somehow tied in with this poem because that's how poetry works in the Bible. And then it says, the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I'm going to get back to this poem in a second, but I want you to notice what happens here. Right then, verse 24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. You say, okay, we get a teaching comment from who? Who's teaching us right now? Moses. Has he done that yet? Has that happened yet? Weird, isn't it? Why does he do it here? And notice, he's writing to people after the fall, after sin. Why is he saying, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother? He's doing that because the thought I could have is this. Well, it all broke anyways. Marriage doesn't matter. That's back in Paul Bunyan land of, yep, a perfect marriage would work like that and she would be a helper and the job would be able to get done. We need a teaching comment because I need to know is what I have the same as what Adam had. That's the thought. Otherwise, I can say, well, the fall changed all that. And if I had my imaginary wife, I would obey what the scriptures said, but because none of that kind exists, we won't do that. And the wife can say, if I had my imaginary husband who was worth being subject to and submitted to, I would do that. But because we don't have any kind like that, I don't have to do that. And Moses is saying, therefore, because God did this, everything about the original marriage stands. It's all true. She's the perfect helper fit for you. He has to do this at this point because otherwise I can put this in fairy tale world. The wish marriage that nobody ever can get. And Moses is saying, nope, therefore, you got to do this thing because it still stands. And do you even see the hope of the gospel in this? Is if you're saying it still stands, the helper, that must mean the job still stands. Even though we're in the wilderness, the job still stands. Huh. I've got to think hard about that. So he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, they shall become one flesh. I'm going to read 25, then we're going to go back up. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay. So, I just thought here, I was talking to Brandon earlier, we were laughing, and um, I was sitting in the back room and I said, what would happen um, if you walked in and I'm sitting here studying and I'm stark naked? All sorts of things would be like, this is really creepy, but... The thought is, you're not ready. Something's not done. Where are your clothes? I would suggest we're supposed to read it like this. In the same way the earth was made but not ready, mankind is not dressed yet for a job. We're supposed to think that way. We're not supposed to have arguments about, will we wear clothes in heaven? You will be wearing clothes. The thought is this, they're going to be dressed. They've got to get dressed. What kind of clothes are they going to wear? 
Are they going to wear clothes of their own making? It's weird. They almost immediately do make their own clothes. Nothing's been made by mankind up to this point. They take it on themselves to make their own clothes very quickly in the story. Later on, God makes another set of clothes. The Bible ends with people wearing clothes. What kind of clothes do they wear then? White robes. Why? That's because that's what priests wear and that's what kings wear. Adam and Eve are in a massive test. What kind of clothes are you going to get, Adam and Eve? Are you going to be naked all your life? You know, you're not going to be naked. This is going to change. So it's almost like they were naked. It's like, huh, we're at a point. Something's going to happen here because you've got to put on some clothes. What kind of clothes are you going to be fitted with? So I want to back up to the story or the poem and then we are going to take a very quick break. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The way poetry works um, is you have a first, we called it a line, bone of my bones. The second line advances the story and intensifies it sometime. Bone of my bones, He's, and you go, well, we'd never fall in love with somebody's bones. That'd be weird. Honey, why'd you marry me? I just loved your bones, honey. You go, no, you love her flesh. She's bone of my bones. But we've moved from inward structure to the outside to her beauty. But even flesh, you'd go, I think we're getting to she's made up like me. I love her personality. I love what she's like. This one, she's different from those ones. Why? Because what just happened? All the animals came by. They don't share my bones. They're not, the makeup isn't like me. And my flesh, we think alike. What makes me human makes her human. So there's, uh, there's a, she will be called woman. Who gets the privilege of naming? Adam. Okay, why? Because she was taken out of man. Okay, think about current, this isn't what Moses was thinking about, but think about current controversies we have in the news. What makes somebody man or woman in popular culture increasingly now? Your own feelings. Your own feelings. I feel like I am a man. I feel like I'm a woman. I feel like I'm both. That idea. This is saying no Woman is taken out of man. That's just a reality. And you can think whatever you want, just like I could think what I wanted about my imaginary God. It doesn't make it so, though. So what's the point of my wife? My point, the point is she's supposed to be my helper. Helper for what? Helper to bring God's image into all the earth. That's the point. Is it a Tom-centered story then? No, it's a very God-centered story about worship. Is he trying to keep something good from me? He's saying, no, I just showed you every animal on the whole planet. You could have had every one of those. All of them you named and said, that's not that, not that, not that, not that, not that. This. We got one. I want this one. So there's a um, word that frames this poem. I don't think any of our English translations do it really well. Um, and the word is this. The word is the first word in the poem, this, and it's the last word in the poem, this. 
And so this is my, uh, my take at the poem. Jason would do a much better take at it than me. This is my take at it. He's not saying this one at last is bone of my bones. What it says in Hebrew is this time. This time, bone from my bones. And you go, why is he saying this time? Because all the other times, when you brought all the other animals in, those times, they were not this time, we've got one. And flesh for my flesh. This one, this one will be called woman. That's what she is. I've named her. We can't pick a new name. We can't redefine this. Why is she going to be called this? Why? Because from man she was taken. And then he says, ends it with this one. So this starts at this time, bone from my bones, flesh from my flesh. This one will be called woman because from man she was taken. This one. The who's he talking to? Think about it. He keeps saying this. So when you talk about something and you say, hey, this book is whatever, are you talking to the book? No, it's outside of you. Is he talking to Eve? He's talking to God because how many options do we have for audiences for Adam at this current moment? (laughs) He's talking about her disconnected, this one. He's talking to God. What's he doing? He's getting married. This is his wedding vows he's making right now. This one is just like me, and I am vowing that I will walk this thing out and I will help. Or she will help me in this job that I'm doing, which is to fill the earth with your glory. That's the job of a marriage. That's the story being happening here. This one, I'm talking to you. I recognize what you made and I'm celebrating what you made and I am all in, in this That's a, thank you for bringing that up. Is it significant, Tom said, that this is the first time Adam uses his voice? What's your answer there? Absolutely. Absolutely. This is the first recorded speech of a human. And he's saying, I'm in for the task. And I'm in for the task with this one. We're on the job. Thank you for my help. And as a reader, you're prepped for, okay, I think this thing's going to work. We got a man, we got a garden, we got a helper, we got a river going out here. We've got a good God that's given his good word to guide the man. Surely he's not going to eat out of this tree because he's been warned about it. It will be exciting to see this garden grow and God's name in this temple be worshipped in all the earth. That's where we're left. So I'd like to take a break here. I'm going to pray. And uh, Brandon will have the joy of bringing us through Genesis chapter 3. And I say joy purposely because you say that's not a very exciting story. It's an incredibly exciting story as Brandon's going to bring us through. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, the help you've given us in so many ways. And for those of us who are married here, we thank you for our wives. I pray that we would model this and live this out really well. We'd be about the business we're supposed to be about. We bless your name. Ask that you would help us stay focused in our task here. Amen.